Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Good evening. So nice to be here together. Um, Familiar faces, a few new faces, and some old faces. Not elderly faces. (laughs) I just want to say that, you know, I didn't really think too much of it during the day today, but teaching the yoga class just before this one just really being aware of how this was the last evening in this space uh, with these incredible wood floors and um, a space that's really held us and magically that we found a year and a half ago to replicate previous space which has always been in an alley so it's really nice to continue to be in an alley and um, uh, at the end of the summer we'll be moving uh, most likely to a space that's being uh, built right now um, in a social housing uh, complex that's being uh, constructed right across the street from the Gladstone Hotel uh, on Queen Street. So uh, I went there today, and it almost works, uh, but it's going to work uh, for us. And um, it's a really interesting building, and, and hopefully... Um, it will feel like home. And maybe even we can just take a minute and just look around and see see the space again. Um, Some of you have really spent a lot of time in this room. Over uh, the last several months, since the beginning of February, we've been studying a Mahayana Buddhist text called the Lotus Sutra, which is a psychedelic text that totally violates all our ideas about space and about time. And its main theme in the second half has really been seeing how you do not need to perfect yourself to become a Buddha. That there are times where you need to do a lot of retreats, maybe you need robes, maybe you need to learn all the chants, maybe you need to do all kinds of ascetic forms of practice uh, in order to find a discipline or training. And yet, at the same time, the heart of the path, which can be missed with all those forms, is to simply become a Buddha by seeing other people as Buddhas. And in a way, maybe that sounds like the fast track, but anyone who's tried to do this, to see everybody that you encounter as a Buddha, and then you're a Buddha for that time being. As opposed to this idea of eventually hitting some threshold of enlightenment that becomes some state that is eternal and outside of the conditions of change but rather to see that if we can only see everybody, even your nemesis, as a Buddha, then in that moment you are also a Buddha. Mm -hmm. 
And sometimes we can do it, and sometimes it's just a distant aspiration. And the idea in the Lotus Sutra, uh, this is called bodhicitta. Uh, Chitta is awareness, and bodhi is to, to kind of rise up or to enlighten. So in other words, rather than enlightenment being a noun, it's this kind of process of enlightening, of using awareness to wake up yourself and to wake up others, and inspired by the last chapter of the Lotus Sutra that we explored last week, um, three monks who were students of Thich Nhat Hanh in the late 60s in Vietnam uh, immolated themselves in order to light themselves up so bright uh, that other people would wake up, knowing that their images would show up in newspapers forever, even though now they show up uh, as semi-pornography on YouTube. And yet, at the same time, uh, this notion that the reason why we live a life unconventionally is not just for ourselves, but it's for others. Which, as we explored last week, kind of tips this idea of eccentricity. Instead of living a life that's unconventional just for oneself, we live unconventionally. In other words, we go against the stream of the momentum of our own habits and the habits in our culture in order to serve others, in order to see everybody as a Buddha. In other words, you can put off your own striving for eternal salvation and instead uh, go to work and roll up your sleeves and help others as an expression of enlightenment. Um, So now that you've been studying the Lotus Sutra, the Lotus Sutra says at its conclusion, uh, everything you do counts. So even the drinking and fooling around I know about it, <laughs> and, and it counts. It's also part of your passion. Um, but nothing counts as much as uh, recognizing the oneness of reality and your own heart. And uh, it's nice to have a reminder that your life really counts. It really counts. Um, the Lotus Sutra always reminds us in every chapter that also it's important to realize that you're doing your best, that you're really doing your best. I think some of us were so hard on ourselves, you know. So how to recognize really that you're doing your best. Um, all the intentional violence and wounding, not the unintentional stuff that we do when we make bad mistakes, but the intentional ways we hurt people, the intentional ways we support corporations that hurt people. Um, All of this is to be recognized and also embraced as part of the oneness of life, which uh, is taught as a kind of way of motivating us, motivating us to do better. Um, I've been reading the end of the Lotus Sutra over and over and just, you know, thinking about all the denial in the world and, and just the complete failure of our cultures in, you know, feeding people. I don't know if you ever get like this, but sometimes you just look around and you wonder, why isn't everybody fed? And, you know, if you read a lot of journals like I do, it's really complicated. It's so complicated why everybody is not fed. It's such a sophisticated system. And then sometimes you just stop and say, why doesn't everybody have a place to sleep? Why doesn't everybody have food? You know, especially in our culture where everyone's trying to lose seven pounds you know, and eat differently you know, because there's so much. Um, is it really so complicated? Is anything really so complicated? I thought about this too. My son, you know, he's getting older. And like he, he's turning eight, he's about to turn eight, and he doesn't want to snuggle as much. Only when no one's around. And his feet are starting to smell. I've never had this before. He, I love just to massage his feet. He loves us too. And now his feet smell. Um, when did that start? 
So this is also the oneness of life, also to recognize this. Um, the third last chapter of the uh, Lotus Sutra is about the per- perceiver of sounds. So this is about Avalokiteshvara, is the name in Sanskrit that you find in India. Avalokiteshvara literally means one who perceives sounds. Sometimes it's poetically translated as one who hears the cries of the world. But in the Surangama Sutra, it's said that uh, the deepest practice a bodhisattva can ever do is just to listen deeply. That of all the possible practices you could ever do, the, the most sophisticated practice is actually just to listen really deeply. And we used to do this practice a few years ago at Center of Gravity. You practice for a month trying to listen for five minutes longer. So somebody's talking to you and you just start shutting out or someone used this term today, I really like gapping. I don't know what happened, I'm just gapping. <laughs> you know, um, To just stay five minutes more. Or maybe there's something, some kind of dialogue internally some kind of anxiety that you don't want to pay attention to, some kind of loneliness even, and just to stay with it five minutes longer. You know, just to wait. You know. And this is what Avalokiteshvara is doing. So Avalokiteshvara is this image here. Um, in China, he becomes a woman, like all the deities do in China, and becomes Kuan Yin which in Japanese becomes kanon or kanzion, all the same figure. Um, So here is Kuan Yin. She is balancing. She's not always upright. She's always kind of leaning a little bit because she's you in your life. She's not this kind of perfect male Buddha sitting straight, nothing touching him or her, but rather she is just kind of surfing, you know, And you'll also notice she's holding this vase, which is her main tool. She listens to the sounds around her and within her. And then she lets all of her tears drop into this vase. And then she takes the vase when it's full and pours it back into the ocean. Because if you've noticed, your tears are salt water. And they're also universal. Joy pain, your tears, your sadness is not just your sadness. Like how much of our sadness is just kind of the sadness of the times? We're we're restricted by our economy, by how we think about gender, by all kinds of things we can't even see, actually. And so much of who we are and what we do is not really even you. It's just you acting out values of the culture that mostly you can't see. How much of our anxiety is really our anxiety? How much is the anxiety of the pressure of consuming and producing all the time? And knowing that you can't step out of that because no one's going to give you a free lunch. It's like in India, if you wanted to get a free lunch, still you can go and get a free lunch. But here you can't go like to sit outside TD Bank and ask for a free lunch. They're not going to give you a free lunch. Um, Her practice is deep listening, listening to the cries of the world, the sound of the world, feeling it and not holding on to it. And not holding on to it. Just holding what is moving through her really lightly. Um, So I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if we could take the Kuan Yin chapter and maybe once a year at Center of Gravity chant it. Like just to remind us that when you're down, and especially those of you that are really post-postmodern that don't have faith in anything other than, I don't know, Derrida, um, to actually be able to think about Kuan Yin. Because these deities are born in an era of human culture where there was no television. So at nighttime, people would just close their eyes and they would visualize the theater of the mythology of their culture. 
And so you can just close your eyes if you don't have a TV, and you can just visualize Kuan Yin when you need her. And so I thought about a way to chant this sutra, and so I thought we would just demonstrate it for you, and then we can decide later if it works or not. So you can uh, just listen, and this is how we would um, chant it. Do, do you want? Do you need to switch spots? Um, one of the things I always loved in uh, both uh, uh, in, in my family when um, we used to get together like at Passover and sing songs, uh, but also uh, in some forms of, of uh, uh, Christian practice that I've been in, how they sing together. I, I love this a lot. And in Buddhism chanting is so formal, you know, you're bowing and the bells and incense and so I thought we would chant the, the sutra like uh, Jewish style. <laughs> Suppose someone should conceive a wish to harm you, should push you into a great pit of fire. Think, Think of the power of that Kuan Yin, and the, the pit, pit of fire, fire will change into a pond. If you should be cast adrift on the vast ocean, Menaced by dragons, fish, and various demons. Think of the power of that Kuan Yin, and the billows and waves cannot drown you. Suppose you are on the peak of Mount Meru, and someone pushes you off. Think, Think of, of the power of that Kuan Yin, and you will hang in midair like the sun. Suppose you are pursued by evil men who wish to throw you down from a diamond mountain. Suppose you are surrounded by evil-hearted bandits, each brandishing a knife to wound you. Think, Think of the power of that Kuan Yin, and at once Suppose you encounter trouble with Stephen Harper's law, face punishment about to torture your life. Think, Think on the power of that Kuan Yin, and the executioner's sword will be broken to bits. Suppose you are imprisoned in Kangyu and Lock, hands and feet, bound by fetters and chains. Think, Think on the power of that Kuan Yin, and they will fall off, leaving you free. Suppose with curses and various pharmaceuticals someone tries to injure you. <laughs> Think on the power of that Kuan Yin, and the injury will rebound upon the originator. Suppose you encounter evil rakshas, poison dragons, and various demons. Think of the power of that Kuan Yin, and then none of them will dare to harm you. If evil beasts should encircle you, their sharp fangs and claws inspiring terror. Think of the power of that Kuan Yin, and they will scamper away in boundless retreat. If lizards, snakes, vipers, scorpions, cockroaches, and Kensington Market threaten you with poison and breath that sears like flame, think of the power of that Kuan Yin, and hearing your voice, they will flee of themselves. If clouds should bring thunder and lightning strike, if hail pelts or drenching rain comes down, Think, Think of the, the power of that Kuan Yin, and at that moment, moment they will vanish away. If living beings encounter weariness or peril, immeasurable suffering pressing them down. The, the power of the Kuan Yin's wonderful wisdom can save them from the sufferings of the world. When lawsuits for the G20 bring you before the court. Think, Think of the power of that Kuan Yin. When terrified in the midst of the army. Think on the power of that Kuan Yin, and hatred in all its forms will be dispelled. There is no reign where compassion does not manifest. In many different kinds of evil circumstances, in the realms of hell, hungry ghosts, beasts, addictions, oil sands, Afghanistan, labor rooms, hospices, ambulances, temples, this very body, listen deeply, listen to the cries of the world. Well done. <laughs> I haven't, I, I actually don't know if we've ever had clapping here. <laughs> um, I think at one level, um, it's easy to confuse this kind of devotion at the end of the Lotus Sutra 
with superstition. But I think that practice, practice, real practice, really aligning your heart with your values uh, and with what you do, uh, starts to collapse superstition and faith. So that the gap between superstition and faith starts to decrease. And then we start to recognize that Kuan Yin is not just a person up here. We start to see in a certain way that we live in different time zones all at the same time. When you get still, sometimes when I get still, I feel again my childhood. Uh, Sometimes you can feel, especially on retreat, we can feel when we get still young, our old anxieties, uh, some of the old fears maybe that you still have that you also had when you were five, when you were nine, when you were 13. And so in a way, uh, that moment in time when you were quiet uh, also uh, brings you back to Kuan Yin, a past that you've lost, that you get in moments, in visions, in dreams. Um, A smell comes in the room and you're reminded Um, in those moments you're saved uh, by Kuan Yin your ability in a moment to hear those old sounds of your past is a moment that you're saved by Kuan Yin to be able to feel what you're feeling and hold it lightly uh, to take the vase and see that all of your tears are not yours We take what we feel so personally all the time. And this doesn't absolve you of responsibility, but it does of identifying with everything that moves through you. Um, This, I think, gives us Shraddha, which is obviously, uh, all of you know who study this, translated as faith. But Shraddha, actually, if you look it up in the Sanskrit dictionary, means confidence. It means to have confidence, to have confidence in your practice, to have faith in your practice, means to return to it, to know that those of you who've been coming here six months, a year, six years, 12 years, that you know that there is a way when the going gets tough that you can turn to something that's right there. And maybe just coming here Tuesdays is enough just to remind you or maybe seeing it work in other people's life is enough for you to have uh, confidence. And also in the last chapters, there are all kinds of predictions that now because all of you have read the Lotus Sutra, even though it's never been actually revealed, um, which is kind of like you, isn't it? Inside the center of this text, the Lotus Sutra, which actually has a title on it that says Lotus Sutra, And we're promised in every chapter you're going to hear about the Lotus Sutra, but it never is taught. And I've read the end. Maybe you haven't read the end. Maybe some of you haven't read any of it. But um, the Lotus Sutra has no center. It's never preached. We never learn the essence of the Lotus Sutra. And maybe it's a little bit like us. You have a name, Lori. And yet, uh, at the center, we don't really know that there is a center to Lori. But yet she radiates Lori. And you know that this is Lori and not Lana. So that's been my favorite teaching in the the Lotus Sutra. Uh, But anyways, it's said that now that all of you have heard the Lotus Sutra, that you will now be able to radiate the Lotus Sutra in times of great need. In other words, now you have a new tool to serve. And I think we need to serve, because there, there's just... When I was thinking about how to end tonight, all I kept thinking about today was just how much hurting there is. It's kind of astonishing, and there's a lot of denial about this. You know, We all deny this with our pain-free meds. But just how much we hurt each other. And I don't mean just the unintentional stuff, but the intentional stuff. And how much we hurt ourselves. And I don't mean the unintentional hurting of ourselves, but intentionally. Uh, Even 
failing yourself by not appreciating yourself. And I thought, does anybody know the pit in uh, uh, Trinity Bellwoods Park? They call it the dog pit, you know. I was thinking, like, what if we had magical powers and we notice how hurt builds up in us, kind of like it's like plaque. And our practice is basically like daily hygiene to kind of undo the plaque. And imagine, though, if the plaque just built up and built up and every day you took your hurt, you took the way you've been hurt, because we feel that at a level when we're quiet. And you put it in the pit of Trinity Bellwoods Park. We just kind of like dumped it there, you know. And I I was wondering like how much weight it would have, what its mass would be, how quickly the pit would fill. Um, And we would do this collectively, kind of like Quan Yin uh, demonstrates for you how you can just let go, really let go of your tears. And we could put all our hurt in this in this pit. It's going to be a movement. Uh, and so maybe the truth about mindfulness, which nowadays has become almost a cliche, um, it's a great way to sell a best-selling book. Um, in fact, some of you might know that in two months, a major book is being released by Harper One, where one of the senators in the United States um, is writing a book about mindfulness in the Senate, uh, which is going to be the biggest commercial release of any book on mindfulness, uh, more so than Eckhart Tolle and John Kabat-Zinn. So we're just seeing the beginning of this. Um, But really, if you think about mindfulness as like daily hygiene, maybe a better way to think about mindfulness, I think, is forgiveness. And this is something that I've been uh, thinking about this last... uh, chapter of the Lotus Sutra, um, really how we forgive. Um, Everywhere you look, we're being told to run away from our pain. Everywhere, everywhere you look, you're supposed to be happy. Even this new movement in the yoga community, to just be happy and have your heart open and feel grace. That's all I'll say about that. Um, But really, to be a good escapist, you you really need to be in favor of distraction. You need to constantly pursue modes of distraction to not feel this pain. And so I thought that we could do a summer practice every day of going to your park, wherever you live, and doing a walking meditation around your park. And just forgiving yourself for whatever stupid thing you did that day to somebody else or to yourself. Could you do this every day as a hygiene practice? Like, I think we forget. We talk about eating well and exercising, but how much we hold if we're not mindful of how we're hurt. And to do this every day just to forgive yourself. And the first step of forgiveness is actually just to stop and just feel what you feel. Um, Why? Because um, it's rare that we sit still for anything painful. It's so much easier just to move around all the shit in your life. I'm just going to put that over here and this thing I'm going to put over there. And I'm going to buy this and move this over here. But also just to be able to stop and really be with what's going on. Um, That's why meditation is not always peaceful. Because it hurts. Um, Step two. uh, This is your practice, so I hope you're taking notes. Step two is um, to go deeply into the root of your pain uh, beneath the story you have about it. Because the root of existence is painful. The root of your existence is painful. Why? Because you are. If you weren't this, you wouldn't have pain. But because you exist, there is pain. 
if you weren't here. Uh, Gertrude Stein said it better. She said, I am I because my little dog knows me. Um, if you weren't, then there wouldn't be pain. Uh, but you are. So it's guaranteed that you will feel some hurt. Um, but then to also see that the one who's hurt you um, also is in the same predicament. And their life also has been restricted. So if you can get to that level in yourself, then it's not so bad with other people. Forgiveness becomes a little bit easier because you can also see how restricted their life has been. Um, and if you can get to that level, it's easier to forgive because we hurt others because we've also been hurt. The only reason why we hurt each other and the only repertoire we have for hurting another person comes from how we've been hurt. Uh, Palestine and Israel are locked together in this kind of pain. And since we're all in this together, we just keep hurting each other. It's not even anyone's fault anymore. And the hardest thing to do, I think, is to forgive yourself for being yourself. We're so annoyed with ourselves. Has anyone here been annoyed with themselves today? <laughs> really, really, to be honest. Have you been annoyed with yourself? I think this is the hardest place of forgiveness. Just like not to be so annoyed with yourself. And maybe the whole goal of spiritual practice is to be as you are. To be whole and also to be a mess. This is why Kuan Yin looks at the Enso. To be whole and also to be able to juggle. To be a mess. Um, and as soon as you're in pain and you start harboring ill will to somebody else, you start acting out that pain, you have the precepts, nonviolence, to sting you, to wake you up again. The precepts sting us all the time. They're a little bit like your eyelashes also. The way they're always there. You just get used to them. You don't often go, oh, eyelashes. And look. Well, I don't, wear, I, I don't wear mascara, but if I did, maybe I would have more awareness of this. But it's almost like you've painted nonviolence on your mascara. And then you look out in the world in this way. And every time you start wanting to injure somebody, has anyone here wanted to injure anyone today? Like, to be honest, I mean, is it, I've had like little thoughts about wanting to get someone back, revenge fantasies. <laughs> um, and every time you do this, you start practicing forgiveness. Uh, because it's a mistake to think people don't receive karma for their shitty actions. Everybody feels this, like stealing something. When something gets stolen, it's worse for the thief. It's always worse for the thief. They feel it. They have to deal with their anxiety. Um, I want to take this a bit further, because this is still the theme of the end of the Lotus Sutra, that people really have very good reasons for hating each other. Uh, we hate each other because we're afraid. Um, and we distract ourselves from our own fear with hatred. It's easier to have hatred than to actually feel your own fear. Has anyone ever experienced this? You know? um, if your beliefs deny the reality of my beliefs, then I'll be terrified in my core and I'll hate you. The only response I can have if your beliefs are anti my beliefs is to hate you. Because the more I hate you, the more I don't have to give up my position. So instead of dealing with my own fear and insecurity, even at an existential level, it's better if I just hate you. And it's not really about the land you own or the land I own. It's about how members of your group killed my group. They took my language, property, rights, they killed siblings of mine, or they killed grandparents of mine. And the only option I have is to hate you. 
how could I be a Jew or a Catholic or a Bosnian if I could forgive somebody? This is a question I always had when I was younger, growing up in a very Zionist family. If I could forgive somebody, then I couldn't be a Jew, it seemed. Um, It would be a betrayal of my family, and it would be impossible. And I think a lot of our cultural conflicts happen in this way. Everyone is stuck. And at my dinner table, it's impossible not to think like this. Um, There is bitterness. And the bitterness helps define a group. That's why in times of war, there have been many studies. There was the wonderful book five years ago by Chris Hedges. I forgot what it was called. Studying people who go to war and how there's all this research about when, when people first go to war, they feel more meaning in their life than they've ever felt because they know who's right and who's wrong. But, but life just doesn't work like this. Uh, in other words, forgiveness threatens our identity. And that's why it's the heart of spiritual practice. Um, but I think that stronger than any of this is really the desire for peace. Actually, deeper than our bitterness is the desire to see somebody else as a Buddha. And in the Lotus Sutra, this is called Tathagata Garbha. Garbha is a womb. There's lots of yoga poses called like Garbha Pindasana, um, which is womb-like. So in other words, in your heart, there is the womb, there is the seed of Buddha nature. And Buddha nature is your capacity for reimagining Others and yourself as a Buddha, which is an act of forgiveness. Um, The word for this, interestingly enough, is dana. A lot of times people translate the Pali word dana into English as donation. But actually, etymologically, the word dana means forgive, which is kind of beautiful. As if forgiveness is this kind of donation that you make for both of you. To really break this word down, like to forgive. Uh, in old English, you would use the term for to give. Um, and the last thing I'll say about forgiveness is that I think that there's nothing more powerful uh, than going through enormous pain and then having a change of heart. Like really going through a hard, hard time, maybe with another person, and at the end coming out without cynicism or bitterness, but actually to have a change of heart where you may never want to see them again. There may be restraining orders, uh, or maybe you've shot them. And also to go into your heart and to have a change of heart. To come home, maybe from the battleground, and to be thoroughly confused that the enemy you thought was the enemy, you you can't completely um, box in like that anymore. They too are complicated and have lives and want peace no matter how hidden that is. Um, Maybe the only reason why we practice is not to have a mystical experience, but just to have a change of heart, to to see yourself in a new way, to see others in a new way. Um, And it's possible not to uh, resist on resent, uh, insist, on resentment. Um, It's very hard, maybe it's the hardest thing, to give up who you think you are. Have you been trying this? To give up, really to give up, who you think you are. In the uh, intensive, we talked about this in four stages. The last stage is just to let go of who you think you are. 
to let go of who you think you are. And when you let go of who you think you are, guess what happens? Things get worse. <laughs> Things get worse because you don't have the shield up anymore. And what are you left with? You're left with an original pain. The original pain of existence. We have tender hearts and we've been beaten up so much and it's really hard not to feel that when you get quiet. You see this all the time of people becoming more sensitive and then becoming overwhelmed by what they see. I, I remember this so much. One of several things that happened to me after one of my first retreats was just being in the airport and just watching people rushing and just saying to myself, everyone's rushing with baggage. <laughs> and I stood there in the airport just crying. Or, you know, here we are in July in Ontario. Just coming home, if any of you have spent some time in the land of Ontario. And just really to, to come home from being near a river. And just to see the kind of level of excitement and also its shadow, which is anxiety you know, and, and fear. And the mistakes we make when we're so busy. Um, so we get supported by practice and we get supported by the Buddha's endless mercy. Kuan Yin's endless mercy looking after us. It's up to you. Um, no matter how much you want to have faith in a Buddha or Kuan Yin, it's up to you. There's no God who's going to come at Christmas time and save you. Uh, but your actions make a difference. So uh, I thought I'd finish with a little poem. Uh, so uh, I wrote this little poem today. And um, sometimes when I write these poems, you know, I just try not to edit them and just to send them out. I hear uh, Sarah Selecki behind me. You don't edit it before you say it. Uh, it's called It's Up to You. It would be easier at my family dinner table if Kuan Yin just showed up in Jerusalem already, told everyone to stop sending Israel so much money, and then passed around her thin brass vase. Then dinner would end, and someone would tell the first joke, did you hear the one about the peace flotilla now stuck in Greece? And it would be a joke. You have a jewel sewn into your coat, but you keep believing in your own poverty. So much so you think words are the only way. You go your way saying, let me think about that. Though your body is a margin that is closer to you than paper is to wood. Go in there. Yes, your body, go in there. It's the country you can never leave. Love, it's the same as forgiveness. An endless whisper that runs down the middle of every sentence. Or maybe forgiveness is like that place in Poland where my grandfather was born. They didn't have roads, he said. Imagine that a time, a country, a life before roads. Now everything is paved over, and anyways, your life keeps happening, shoveling shit, running from the house when it's burning, and it's burning. In the middle of suffering, there is a deep peace. It's disguised sometimes as rain. You can see it from a train window. Every day has a stride and clouds. We only need do our part, and Buddha does the rest. Sad as it may be, suffering is okay. That impossible coda of the Lotus Sutra is this. Keep faith in what you are. Keep faith in exactly what you are. Okay. That's all I have to say. So hopefully that was a summation of the last few chapters. To, to be honest, this poem had some restraints in it. Basically, it was just sentences written in the margins 
of the Lotus Sutra uh, that I had like written out for all the talks of the Lotus Sutra. So you'll recognize some parts of the Lotus Sutra in there. Um, so I, I really think that if we can maybe just put this term mindfulness in the compost, <laughs> like just drop it. It's enough with the mindfulness now. And like, what about if we started a new campaign for forgiveness hygiene? A kind of daily hygiene practice of forgiveness. I really think this would be putting the Lotus Sutra into action. Don't you? So I want to know what, what you think uh, before we finish. Because this is kind of the ending of many, many psychedelic chapters. And such a simple ending which is to activate the Lotus Sutra just to forgive. Just, just forgive, really, to do that. Really to do that. It's really, really hard. Maybe the hardest thing you could ever do. To change your mind. Really to cha- have this experience of changing your mind about something. We all wish other people would do it, right? <laughs> When are they going to change their mind? Like, if you could really change your mind about something. So, what what do you think? What what comes up for you? I've been talking for 30 minutes. From forgiveness, Mm -hmm. and love, Mm and acceptance. Yeah. Yeah, I think forgiveness and love is maybe simultaneous, even. Yeah, yeah. It wipes it clean in your heart, and also it's still complicated. Because forgiveness doesn't just mean like, oh, I've forgiven so-and-so, and and now we're going to start hanging out again. It doesn't mean that. It means, you know, I need some boundaries here. I might not ever spend time with this person. This is not a good or safe place to be. I might be able to go there intellectually, but my skin can't do it. I I say this to myself sometimes. Um, Like, if I have a lot of commitments, I'll ask myself, you know, I know I can go, but can my skin go? (laughs) So there can be forgiveness, and you need to protect yourself, too. Yeah. One element that it's sort of related to the element of forgiveness, but it's an element that I sort of would like maybe just to put out there that is a little bit I'm struggling with trying to understand is the element yeah. of uh, suffering and and sort of elements of what you're talking about in um, the path towards enlightenment or whatever. Yeah. Um, because I think that uh, ironically that suffering can lead to wisdom or maybe I'm, I'm confused now as to what to think about yeah. that because I think that struggling let's say to write an essay or write mm-hmm. a book or mm-hmm pay the rent uh-huh. is pushing yourself to achieve a, I don't know, a better element of yourself and sure. that is pushing yourself and it takes hard work yeah. that some might call or that I sometimes call yeah. suffering but it's leading to an achievement mm-hmm. so I'm confused yeah. you know and, and sometimes I say well if I've taught a class you know I, I think mm-hmm. I want my students to read that book and they're yeah. like oh we have to read that book yeah. and I think I'm putting suffering on them yeah <laughs> But I think it's going to lead them to be hopefully wiser. But now I'm kind of confused. I'm like, guilty of feeling, I don't know. But yeah. I'm just putting that out there. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the threads that I hear in your comment has to do with ambition. You know, And I think that, in a way, Buddhist psychology is, very, is deeply distrustful about ambition. What does it mean just to fully engage in what you're doing because it really turns you on and also it benefits others. The things that most excite us benefit other people. It's like the secret to happiness that nobody talks about. Like really to serve other people. It makes people feel so good, you know, and to serve themselves also, right? Like the world is a much better place when you're in touch with what you love. And when you're driven by fear or by anxiety, 
that you've never really dropped into, then this kind of ambition arises to kind of get somewhere, as if there's this thing called me that can like achieve something and then get grounded when that's achieved. And that kind of ambition we're very suspicious of. You know. So in that first part of your comment or question, you know, it's like how, how to really be aware of your motivations. You know, are you really doing what you love to begin with? And when there are, I mean, how many people are suffering from meaningless work? Meaningless work. You know, I have to make the rent, so I have to do this job. I'm in this cycle. Yes. And also, there are choices you make in there. There are choices you make in there. And there's going to be some constraint by our culture and the way we do our economy and the values we live in in this time that... You know, for example, one of the teachings the Buddha said around, this is a digression, but one teaching the Buddha said around how to work with money is that you shouldn't have debt. So in this new move that center of gravity is making, one of the things we've decided in our financial plan is everything we do will not have any debt. As an organization, can we build an organization and have no debt? And the second thing is, your money should never come into contact with arms. Okay? If you have money, it's in contact with arms. Yeah. It's impossible. In Canada, if you have money, it's in contact with mining and oil sands. Even if you're in ethical funds, if that money is in the bank, you know, so, so you can't be pure. You can't be pure. Okay, so we're also constrained by the values of our society. But how to be aware of your ambition and how that's propping up a sense of self out of anxiety. And that's where we need to get clear, I think. Rather than this like ambition and career ambition and I need this and this. And that's more of like moving shit around. That's going to be the title of my next book. <laughs> Moving shit around and the path to freedom. <laughs> I had a title for a book recently called If Your Stuff's in Storage, You Don't Need It. <laughs> okay, somebody else. Yeah, what's your name? Lisa. Lisa. So, um, I apologize, I haven't been here for a long time. Okay. Um, but I, I kind of have a problem um, accepting composting the word mindfulness. Yeah. Um, because to me, uh, it's semantics. It's, mm -hmm. it's just a word for, mm -hmm. to me, what represents self-awareness and yeah. thinking about what's around you yeah. and being able to forgive yourself uh -huh. is part of that, yeah. what I would call, in a way, mindfulness. Yes. And I know that it's, I guess it's been a term that's been thrown around. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's a term that people can identify with easily. Yeah. And they can sort of say, okay, mindfulness represents maybe thinking about something more than just my daily routine. Yes. So yeah. I'm just wondering, like in terms of thinking about forgiveness, yes. practicing forgiveness yes. in a way that's also practicing mindfulness, uh -huh. almost just changing okay. maybe the thought of it. So I'm just wondering. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, how do you... What do you think Great. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. At the same time, uh, in the clinical world, which is a world I participate in a lot, um, mindfulness has been reduced to meaning paying attention on purpose, without judgment. And that doesn't cut it, because it doesn't take into account that it's also creating a system of values. It's based on values. It's not just paying attention to become a better soldier in whatever way you're a soldier. It's uh, paying attention to cultivate generosity and to let go of self-centeredness. And it's based in a system of values. And I think that as we start to try to talk about mindfulness without it being embedded in those values, whether you call them Buddhists, I don't care. But when they get separated from the value of generosity, the value of forgiveness, the value of creativity, 
the value of work, then I think it becomes just about um, um, uh, just just another kind of uh, technique for concentrating. And I don't know if we need that. Yeah. So, yes, yes, I'm with you. <laughs> I catch the drift. I'm going to Victoria in a couple of days, so I'm trying to um, practice their lingo. <laughs> Yeah, so next time you have a friend that says, Oh, you know, I'm I'm starting I'm starting to really practice mindfulness in daily life and you can say, You mean forgiveness? <laughs> you mean generosity? <laughs> and just see what happens. <laughs> Absolutely. On the one hand, we need to um, to really, I think, be able to look at something in yourself that's been habitual. There has to be mindfulness. <laughs> and it shouldn't be in the compost. It should be right there. And there has to be some forgiveness. It's okay. It's okay you've done this. Kind of like when you're meditating... When you're sitting at home early in the morning trying to follow your breath and you can't, you're so obsessed about a meeting coming up in a couple hours. Just to know that is to be aware that you still sit there and you're aware you can't sit there at the same time. And then you're mindful of not being present and then you're present, right? So you're holding yourself accountable and also, at the same time, you're being gentle with yourself. If you hold yourself accountable, like, you goddamn idiot, like, doing the same stupid thing again, how many times are you going to marry a man like that? You know? <laughs> then you, at, in that moment, you kind of catch yourself. You go, slow down. Like, there's another way to explore that. It's yeah. like a dance. A dance, yeah. yeah. And it doesn't work without mindfulness. <laughs> Yeah. Um, What's your name? Sushila. Sushila. Um, so what does the practice of forgiving yourself look like? Is it really just meditating, going to your heart, and really like pretty much saying that to yourself, I forgive myself? Is that kind of what it looks like? I, I think the first step is to find a park. <laughs> I really mean it. You know, the Buddha, I think we, we don't talk about this a lot, but in the Buddha's instructions on meditation, he says the first thing you should do is go sit under a tree and cross your legs. It's the first thing. I think if you want to practice forgiveness, start when you're a bit worked up. Uh, go to the park, walk around the park. Find your breathing, walk around the park, and just... Stop the running train of your mind and just check in with how you feel. How do I feel right now? And I think that's the first step, is just not to deny what's actually going on, to kind of allow what's going on to be there. And I would say that being soft with yourself and, and, and being able to hold lightly, like Quan Yin does with tears, what's going on is forgiveness. It is love. As opposed to this absurd religious idea, which I think is kind of an altruistic form, a kind of pathological form of altruism, that one day we're just going to become like a saint and just love everybody, and you'll get like Dalai Lama giggles and like everything will be. But what about like now? Here tonight? 
just to be soft with yourself and kind of feel how the how was the day. You brush your teeth twice a day. Maybe you should walk to the park twice a day, and just know how you feel. Otherwise, you just start moving stuff around in your life. This should go here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to buy this. I'm going to sell this. Then I'm going to move here, and then finally I'll meet her, and then um, everything will be good. And center of gravity will have a home. <laughs> as opposed to just like, oh, this is what I feel. And then if you stay connected to that kind of originalness, maybe this is what we do when we meditate, is you come back to the earth. And mostly when people first start meditating, what you first notice is just anxiety, is distraction. Uh, But when you sit down, you come back to what's real. And this is what we need to do, everybody in this room, just to be here with what's real, what's actually going on, not spinning in these vortexes of denial. It's so easy, so easy to do. Yeah, I'm thinking about, uh, my name is Christina, and I'm thinking about honesty, and I'm thinking about how, at least for myself, I often tend to over-exaggerate or under-exaggerate my responsibility or when it comes to forgiveness. Yeah. So either, uh, you know, excessive self-blame and taking on too much, yeah. or kind of just, oh, it's not a big thing. And I'm thinking about that moment of that turning point or that mm-hmm. um, change of heart, that that's yeah. really that meeting of just seeing it for what it is, yeah. you know, yeah. not, not larger, not smaller, but yeah. just, and at least the turning points in my life has been when I'm able to just sit yeah. with yeah. With that. Yeah. 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 Thank you for sharing. So, um, maybe we should draw this to a close. And uh, it's it's really a big deal for me tonight to say good night because, um, well, I'm not really saying good night because we're going to have a potluck now. <laughs> and for those of you who didn't bring food, please please stay. And for those of you um, who are a little shy, um, please hang around for five minutes longer. (laughs) So in that moment where it's like, okay, i got to get out of here. (laughs) Someone might talk to me. Stay for five minutes longer and and give someone your face. Someone said last week, I don't, you know, I don't want to come. I don't really like the social stuff. And I said... Come for other people so that they can know you. This is a big part of creating community, is just to eat together. That's why bagels were invented. <laughs> um, someone saw an Enso and was inspired. <laughs> but, but really, this is our last night here, and, and I would really... Um, just, just love uh, for you all when you stay and, and have potluck together just to really enjoy being here together one last time um, before we relocate. And um, uh, it's, it's really exciting. And uh, um, Let's finish chanting. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 Do not squander your life. Do not squander your life. May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be safe and free from danger. 
May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. Namaste. Thank you very much. Thank you to the choir. <laughs> and also thank you to um, uh, those of you in advance for putting Donna in the Donna box. Four to give. Um, um, please do so on your way out. And so what we'll do here is we'll just set up food kind of in the middle of the room. And we'll wait till it's all set up before we, before we eat.